Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, now with the University of Johannesburg Center for African Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well,、uh, it's great to be back. I was off last week, and Kobus held down the、uh, the fort. I was、uh, stuck in a Taiwan. Uh, hospital bed with a forty degree fever, about a hundred and four degrees, with a nice case of strep throat. So, but thankfully, everything is now all back and correct, and everything is good. And I'm thrilled to be back, Cobus. Thank you so much for、uh, for kind of taking the mic for me. It was such a pleasure. It was actually pretty nerve wracking, I have to say. <laughs> okay, well, let's.、Uh, as always, we have three topics on the show.、Uh, this week, we're going to talk about、uh, the new Secretary of State for the United States,、uh, John Kerry. Last week, he, in his Senate confirmation, gave some testimony, and the issue of China, Africa, U.S. relations came up, and a few worrying things for those of us in the Sino-African uh, space. Uh, his tone was something that we will dissect a little bit. So we'll talk. About that, and then there's a column that came out by Jonathan Power, who is a foreign affairs columnist syndicated around the world, who said that even if the United States and other Western countries want to catch up to the, to the Chinese in Africa, it may in fact now be too late. We'll get Cobus's take on that. And finally, the mineral du jour in、uh, for the Chinese in Africa is platinum. And a number of platinum deals being done in South Africa, and we'll kind of talk about why platinum is on the,、uh, the the Chinese shopping list right now. Okay, let's get started right away with、uh, former Senator John Kerry, who is now actually, in fact,、uh, the Secretary of State for the United States. He starts Monday, 9 a.m. He's been confirmed by the Senate,、uh, but in his confirmation hearings,、uh, a number of quotes came up. That were a little bit disconcerting in my point of view. Now, Cobus, we talked about—I'd say about a couple months ago—how we were mildly impressed that the debate and the discussion in Washington is advancing away from the kind of very, very superficial semantics of colonialism. Remember, it wasn't that long ago that Hillary Clinton herself、uh, was in Lusaka talking about Chinese neo-colonialism. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about that, and then all of a sudden, two or three months ago, at the Center for American Progress, there was this great discussion, and you really felt like the discussion in Washington was moving forward. Now, this past week,、uh, Senator Kerry, now Secretary of State Kerry, appears before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he starts using a lot of this old language. Before we get started, let me give you a little bit of his testimony, and then you can kind of contextualize it for us, Cobus. So. He said, "This is quoting from the the Senate confirmation hearings. Now, with respect to China and Africa, China is quote all over Africa. I mean, all over Africa, and they're buying up long-term contracts on minerals, on you name it. And there are some places where we're not even in the game, folks. I mean, I hate to say it, we got to get in, but it takes a little bit of resourcing. Believe me, somebody is paying for those folks to be over there. Somebody's investing in the in their investment of time, and we have to be prepared because I think what." We bring to the table is frankly a lot more attractive than what a lot of other countries bring to the table. And of course, his implication there is China. He goes on to talk about,、uh, you know, it's a game, and that word is very, very loaded in、uh, in, in African politics. The game, of course, referring to the Great Game、uh, in Africa, which was the scramble for Africa as well. So the Great Game, of course, was referenced to Central Asia, but at the same time, it's also been widely used with respect to Africa. Okay, Cobus. I've kind of set it up for you. 
tell me a little bit about your reaction and give me some of the context as why there was such a negative reaction in the blogosphere and in the on the web to Senator Kerry's comments with respect to China, Africa, U.S. relations. Well, you know, I think, yeah, as you said, it, it, it smacked of old language, you know, kind of in the first place, I think a lot of people jumped on the word game um, because in a way it, it sounds so it sounds so trivial, you know, kind of, um, it, uh, you know, these are, these are actual people's, like actual countries, economies, actual people's livelihoods that are, that are being talked about. It's not a game, you know, kind of it's, it's business. Um, so that is one thing. Another thing is that a lot of people pointed out, and I agree that it makes, it, it tends to suck the agency out of the African position, you know, kind of, so Africa is basically seen as someone's backyard with no decision-making power of its own. And, you know, so the real problem, it seems for Kerry is the, the problem that the Chinese are in their backyard, not that the Chinese are offering something that the Africans want, you know, in a way what the Africans want tend to become a kind of a moot point in, in, you know, in, in the way that he's speaking. And I think that that is a major problem. Now, one of the most articulate critiques of the Kerry confirmation hearings came from Robert Bates on Wednesday, January 30th in the, the Independent. That's, of course, the British newspaper at independent.co.uk. Just look for Robert Bates. He wrote a piece which I thought was excellent called Too Often the West Sees Africa as a Pawn in a Power Game. John Kerry, for one, should know better. And, of course, this was the reference to the game he talks about. And, and again, it's this neo-colonialism, this colonial type of attitude. And I think, for me, what's so interesting is not the fact that, you know, he's completely misreading the situation to me. That is, again, this is not neo-colonialism. This is not the 19th century scramble for Africa. Uh, and I get the sense that Kerry is framing it in that point of view. And that's what's so destructive. And then the other part that I thought was so offensive was this implication that the United States has a better package to offer uh, offer African states, when in fact one African government after another has complained about the bureaucracy of working with the Americans, about the fact that the Americans simply are not there, about the fact that the Americans are very rigid in tying conditionalities to their development projects, uh, making it so the fact that they are not that easy to work with. Now, we may say that, well, those conditionalities are what promote civil society, they're what promote equal rights, human rights, and whatnot. But at the end of the day, for African governments, uh, it's not always easy dealing with the West. And that's something we heard about in that Center for American Progress conference, saying that the West, and USAID in particular, is extremely bureaucratic and extremely difficult to deal with. So again, there's this delusional yeah. aspect on, in Washington, and I think that, you know, our poop doesn't smell, we are the best, we are God's gift to the world. When, in fact, not even just the Chinese, but the Brazilians, the Turks, the Koreans uh, sometimes come with a lot less baggage than the Americans come with. Yeah, and also, I mean, it's not only the, how, that the Americans are sometimes difficult to work with, they're really difficult to get hold of, you know, so what, what, one of the things that came out at, at this hearing was that whereas um, America has uh, three foreign commercial service offices just in Hong Kong, they have only 10 in the whole of Africa, you know, so it's, it's, it's just, Africa's just very underserved, um, you know, and um, so it's, it's the, it's Americans, uh, Americans American companies' um, business in Africa is not being facilitated by the American government. Um, you know, so to then say that that America brings all of this transparency and they're so wonderful to work with and so they're so innovative, I mean, all of that might very well be true, and I think in many cases it is true, but it, it doesn't help the Africans because the American companies, are, you know, their business with 
Africa isn't being facilitated. So it's kind of a moot point. With the exception of, say, Coca-Cola, how many, and you're yeah. in Johannesburg, how many American companies in terms of visible American brands do you see on the streets every day? Coca-Cola, McDonald's yeah. are the two biggest ones. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're, they're these Apple to saying. a certain extent. Those yeah. two go without yeah. saying, but give me some more. I mean, cars, give me, go into the supermarket and talk to me about, um, you know, again, Unilever products, not even American. Uh, you know, yes. you go through the list of consumer brands and in Africa, I have found, whether it's, you know, all the way in North Africa down to Sub-Saharan, the Americans just aren't there for the most part. Uh, yes, Samsung yes. Ford has a certain Ford has a certain presence um, in South Africa, but I mean they're being displaced. You know, kind of like they're they're the third or fourth, you know, kind of biggest one now. Um, so yeah, the, you know, just generally, like you know, kind of East Asian and European brands are just stronger frequently in 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 Africa. So, you know, again, my point, and I've said this many, many times, and this was echoed in the Center for American Progress discussion that happened a couple months ago in Washington, is that the United States is not easy to deal with. We think of ourselves as, again, you know, very supple when it comes to business. We think of ourselves as very easy. But as you pointed out, who do you call? You know, in, if in Beijing, it's very easy for, again, the foreign minister or the commerce minister to get a hold of his counterpart in Beijing, relatively speaking. It is extremely difficult for the foreign minister of Togo to get, the, to get Senator, you know, Secretary of State Kerry on the line now. That just is very difficult. Yeah, you know, I mean, those the, other, the other thing that I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, what, what did you make of this thing of like someone is paying for those folks to be over there? Someone is investing in the investment of time. It's like, is he, is he perpetuating the Chinese, the Chinese government is sending out Chinese companies kind of myth that we've been complaining about for years now? I think it's indicative of a very simplistic understanding of this issue. And I am surprised that at this stage in the game for a geopolitical relationship as vital as the Sino-African one is just on oil alone. Let's just kind of stick to oil, think that the Americans might actually pay attention to. The fact that Kerry did not have a very deep understanding of this is, to me, rather remarkable and that he was not briefed on it. But I think what it does is it shows you a little bit inside the mindset of the senior State Department and the senior inside the Beltway kind of thinking about the Chinese in Africa, which is, again, extraordinarily unsophisticated. You would be amazed. And I had a very brief conversation with Assistant Secretary of State Johnny Carson when I was in Paris. Uh, you would be amazed at, the, at, at the, the kinds of thinking that they have. It is still this very much this 20th century thinking. It is still that America is the kind of uh, admired voice for democracy and everything else is secondary. We don't have to adapt and change because, well, we're America. And, and what I think is the provincialism in the thinking of, the, of, of senior U.S. foreign policy officials on this particular topic is absolutely shocking. And I think that his briefers who guided him through this hearings were, in fact, kind of reflecting that. And that's what we saw. And that's what we heard as well. So I hope that he uh, it, it does better than Hillary Clinton did. Hillary Clinton on this, on this particular agenda, to me, was not very strong at all. She kept sounding the alarm of Chinese neocolonialism. Again, I think you and I have talked about this for years now, and everybody who's anybody in this business says it could be a lot of different things, but colonialism, it's not.
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's also, it's it's kind of disappointing for me in a way because there's a lot of really good work being done in academia about, you know, about what the role of African states is in all of this. So, you know, to, to, to just kind of basically see Africa as this empty space or to see African governments as being very easily co-optable by Chinese pressure, that's just, it's just wrong. It's just not true. You know, kind of um, like Jill, um, Giles Mohan and Ben Lampert these two academics who recently, actually this month, published a new paper in African Affairs. Now, unfortunately, if you're not at a university, that journal is almost impossible to get hold of um, because Oxford University Press is not making it generally available. It's only available in, in university libraries. But they did a whole bunch of very interesting studies of what the actual role is of Africans in China-African relationships, particularly in Nigeria and Ghana. And that was just, it's so interesting. It's like, you know, kind of, it's the African elites play all kinds of very complicated games with the Chinese. They 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 tend to direct the 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 investment in ways that that suit them. And then at the same time, there are all of these organic links being made between between Africans on the street level and Chinese on the street level. That is really directing this kind of massive international trade in, in Chinese goods, you know. So it's not simply that China is, for example, flooding Africa with cheap goods. Most of those cheap goods are imported by Africans from China. You know, so it's just you know, it just seems like Kerry's way of speaking about it just seems like he, you know, that he's just missing so much of, of work, that's, of, of data that's actually being generated in the field. What I think is missing in the State Department is really a special desk on, you know, that follows this. You know, they don't really have that type of specialization, the China-Africa specialization or even the Asia-Africa uh, specialization inside the State Department. They've got their China guys over in Beijing. They've got their Africa guys, you know, in Africa. And then they those guys kind of rotate through on the, the various desks in Washington. And they're not cross-pollinating on that. And I, so I do hope that in the Kerry administration uh, at the State Department, we start to see some more. It's wishful thinking on my part. Nonetheless, we'd like to hear what you think. Uh, Tendai Musakwa, who is our, uh, our, our man in Shanghai, uh, he has posted translations, two very, very interesting posts on, on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. One, he has posted a, some Chinese netizen reaction to the Kerry confirmation hearings, and they are absolutely fascinating, and I really encourage you to take a look at that. He's done the translation himself. Uh, he also then kind of extracted out from the, the Kerry confirmation the key points on China, Africa, and he's posted that up as well on our Facebook page and as well on our site at ChinaAfricaProject.com. So we'd like to hear what you think. What do you think of John Kerry? What do you think of his comments with respect to the Chinese and the, the Chinese and U.S. policy in Africa? And we'd love to hear more. Do you agree or disagree with what Kobus and I are saying? This is the place to do it. Go onto our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Okay, Kobus, let's go now on to our second topic. And even if John Kerry gets everything together. I mean, he gets every duck lined up. Uh, Jonathan Power, who is an international affairs and foreign affairs columnist, uh, he's written the, uh, a, a post uh, this past week on Tuesday the 29th, and of course he's syndicated all over the world. Uh, I picked up this particular article in the South China Morning Post. And he says, China's influence in Africa will only grow, and it's leaving its rivals in the dust with the scale of its trade in the region. And he basically says, even if the Americans and anybody else wants to try and catch up to the Chinese, it may in fact now be too late. 
I was wondering about this, I have to say. Like, kind of, you know, Africa needs a lot of stuff. You know, they, they need a lot of roads, a lot of mines to be mined, a lot of, you know, coffee shops to be started. So I'm not sure that necessarily, that it's necessarily true that the Chinese have already pretty much run away with that whole game. I mean, they might be difficult to catch up with, but I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that the Chinese are not doing. Yeah, did you also did you find this a little bit a little bit like moving a little too fast? I I thought it reminded me again of back in two thousand three when I was a graduate student at the University of Hong Kong, and and that was a time when the United States was in just terrible repute, repute around the world. You know, this was the Iraq War had just started. George Bush was really pissing off everybody. I remember that if the number twenty three bus that came to campus was late, you know, it must have been America's fault somewhere in there, <laughs> and everybody said China. China is the answer. You know, China was going to the ASEAN summits and they were having, you know, trade delegations, culture delegations, education delegations. And everybody was kind of saying China's the new power and the credibility of China was immense. America, all we wanted to talk about was terrorism. So you thought at that point, wow, this is really amazing how China just has become almost insurmountable in its diplomatic credibility. And yet now here we are 10 years later and throughout Asia, uh, China is just blowing their credibility. I mean, blowing all of that hard-earned trust that they that they built up over the past 15, 20 years. You know, through these disputes in the islands in the South China Sea, we're seeing now mining disputes in, in Myanmar. I mean, you name it, up and down Asia, the suspicion of China is incredible. And I guess my point here is, is that don't underestimate the Chinese ability to mess this up. And so while right now they are just flying high with, you know, $200 billion of projected trade in 2013 between, you know, China and Africa, all of this great, you know, handshaking at the forum for, for China-Africa cooperation, it's wonderful. But, man, they can mess this up. As we're seeing here in Asia, they're really messing it up. So I, I, this hyperbole from power to me leaves me a little bit uneasy because it implies that the, the, the end of this story is already uh, told. And we don't know how yeah, this ends. Exactly. For me, the bigger thing, you know, kind of the bigger story of China, China-Africa, is not necessarily just China's influence, although that's very important and very interesting. But it's the, the growing influence of the rest of the non-Western world in Africa. Um, you know, so it's, it's the old kind of Farid Zakaria point that, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily the decline of the West, it's the rise of the rest. You know, so the, the growing influence of Iran, of Turkey, of South Korea, all of these different countries in Africa, um, that is potentially really interesting. Um, and the issue for me then becomes to which extent is Africa going to be able to really play all of these people off against each other and to, to really gain from all of these different relationships. I mean, the, the real, the important thing about China and Africa, except for the massive scale of its investment, is also the fact that it's, it was the first real splitting between Africa and the West you know, this kind of toxic relationship between Africa and the West. And the first real dawning of, of, the, of a different, of a possibility of a different kind of economy, world economy for Africa. Um, but I, I, I think it might be, you know, kind of to, to say then that, that China, that that's the end of the story and not the beginning, you know, kind of that, that, that seems to be a problem for me. Yeah, and, and just in Power's defense now, so, uh, you know, I've disagreed with him and I think you have as well for, uh, you know, his overall conclusion. But at the same time, he does kind of raise a couple key points which I think are valid. One is he says China will be an important part of Africa's future. 
Undoubtedly, the relationship will broaden and deepen. Other investors in the West, India, and the Arab world will have a hard job keeping up with it. I think that's a fair statement. That's his concluding point, is that it may not be impossible, but it's going to be very, very difficult. The other thing that he says, which I think is interesting as well, and he acknowledges this, that there are a million Chinese now living in Africa, across the continent. Uh, You and I have talked about many, many times that most of these people uh, are not affiliated with any Chinese government project, any state-owned enterprise initiative. They are simply individuals who are made their way to Africa, and they ain't leaving. So this is going to be a fundamental demographic and racial and cultural shift uh, in many African countries. So I think that's very interesting as well, and he acknowledges that that will actually play. You do not have a million Americans in Africa. You have, in fact, very weak cultural ties between the United States and Africa today. Uh, There are not many Americans returning to Africa, uh, African Americans or otherwise. Uh, So those human-human ties are very, very important, which we don't see from other countries to the extent that we see uh, from the Chinese. So I think he made two good points on that one. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, you know, kind of, and it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. And a lot of it is going to is going to depend on Africans themselves and on their capacity to kind of reimagine what it means to be African. You know, um, and that I have to say is still for me still in the balance. You know, kind of, there's a lot of ethnocentrism in Africa. There's a lot of of uh, you know, there's just it's just not a culture that used to thinking of itself as a cosmopolitan culture or as a multicultural culture. So you know, at the moment there are a lot of attempts to build new kinds of African multiculturalism I'm not sure how well it's going um, you know so we, we see a lot of a lot of Chinese being chased out of markets and a lot of Chinese being kind of barred from different kinds of trading and other kinds of things that, that would be open to, to you know in, in other societies would be open to immigrants so yeah you know kind of I think how well that that goes it just to a large extent uh, it depends on africans themselves you know and it's interesting too because i think the chinese government does have a role to play here in terms of supporting the chinese who are here now this came up this past week because in monrovia liberia uh, i don't know if you saw this about 400 chinese immigrants uh, protested outside of the chinese embassy really denouncing the chinese embassy for its lack of support and this is something that we've heard about time and time again in a real misunderstanding from a lot of people about the Chinese in Africa, that they're this, somehow this kind of centrally controlled, tightly regulated group of people, when in fact the embassies there provide very little to no support for many of the small independent entrepreneurs. And so, and this, of course, is where a lot of the flashpoints are happening in Sino-African relations. So uh, whether it's illegal gold mining in Ghana, whether it's, we talked about uh, with Alexander a couple weeks ago about uh, beauty salons in Namibia. We've talked in Zambia, a number of the, of the labor problems that are happening there. And I think China really, the government has a role to play here to try and dispel. We've talked about the public relations role it can play and dispel some of the negative uh, perceptions of the Chinese. That could help too. If they don't do that well, uh, then, then the big parts of this experiment could go awry. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it it could go really badly, you know. Um, and I, I still... Um, I still haven't seen a real articulation from, from Africa. Not only that... Africa needs to get what it can and needs needs to kind of um, you know kind of m- make use of this this relationship to to the to to build up itself in the best kind of way. I mean that that you see said a lot, but I've I haven't I've yet to see a real articulation of the idea that Africa has a responsibility 
to build a new kind of African culture and a new, you know, kind of to, to welcome people into Africa. That's just not something that's getting said well, what um, in say, African society. Well, let me challenge you on that. I mean, you know, before he passed away, Selas Manawi uh, in Ethiopia seemed like he had a clear view and Paul Kagame in Rwanda seems like he's got a clear view. Now, what's ironic about both of these two is they are less than democratic. Um, when it mm-hmm. comes to, you know, the asshole index, they figure both pretty high. They, you know, but at the same time, they had a, they seem to have, and I might be misreading this, but they seem to have a rather clear view on how and what role they saw Chinese foreign investment to play. Is that, uh, is that what you're talking about? I'm um, not really. I mean, you know, I think I think they had a clear vision of what of what high level investment is supposed to of the role high level investment is supposed to play. Um, and in that sense, I think the some African governments and the Chinese government is, is are relatively on the same wavelength. They want mutual benefit, um, and I think that that's fine. For I'm I rather mean like uh, more on the le- on the street level. You know, kind of there there needs to be the idea that that like any other state and on, on a different continent, African states should also have a certain elastic idea of its own identity, that it's possible to allow new people into your in-group um, and for people to become real citizens, not just not just immigrants, not just people there to create jobs, not just foreigners, you know, kind of taking jobs or giving jobs, but actually actual real participants. And, you know, kind of that's a difficult thing for lots of societies, but it's a particularly difficult thing in Africa. And I don't know whether it's really been achieved in many African societies. Um, and it's definitely not really being achieved by, by all of the new kind of new Chinese people arriving. They, they're participating in business, but the, but all of the rest of their lives are kind of kept under the radar. They're not really there completely fully as citizens and as co-owners of, of the kind of public space. Um, and they're not. Uh, my feeling is it's going to take a shift in mindset among Africans themselves for that to be able to happen. But let me let me defend the immigrant kind of point of view here. And I say this because I am a foreigner living in a foreign land, uh, you know, and I got to be honest with you, I'm not that assimilated. Um, I live in my own little yeah. cultural bubble. Uh, and, and I guess my point is that, you know, the first generation and we are still within the first generation of, of the, this wave of Chinese immigration to, to Africa, uh, for the most part, does kind of stick to itself a lot more. It's the second generation that starts to assimilate. It's the second generation mm-hmm. that speaks the language. It's the second generation that has the cultural touch points. It's the second generation that often goes to school. We saw in the documentary uh, from uh, from our good friend Solange Chandelach, who did uh, King Cobra and the Dragon, where she featured uh, you know the, these young children in Zambia and Lusaka. Who these young Chinese children who spoke with a beautiful uh, Zambian accent, you know, and uh, and the mother said, "I don't mind if my daughter grows up to to marry, a, you know, a Zambian, a Black African." And, and to me, that's the second generation where we really give it the time. It's a lot of pressure to put on one person who comes from a foreign culture, may not speak the language, is just trying to kind of earn a living and make enough money to send back home and support his family. Then to kind of take on all of the cultural burdens of assimilation, I think that's a lot to ask. And I, I say from my own experience here, uh, me living in Asia, um, you know, I'm not doing it myself, you know, and I have the luxury because of my of, of relative wealth compared to, uh, say, a, a, a Chinese immigrant to Africa. It's an optional thing for me. But at the end of the day, I, I still think that's something that takes more than one generation sometimes to really see an effect. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right, you're right. Um, 
You know, maybe I'm a little bit more pessimistic um, in the sense that, you know, like, because some of my friends, and, and those are not only, um, some of my friends are, for example, are South African-born Chinese, for example, who are in the process, in the long-term process of moving, or, uh, who have now been in, in South Africa for a while, like more than one generation, some of them three generations, and they're in the process of moving their families to Canada. Um, you know, and some of my friends as well, you know, kind of, for example, the Jewish community in South Africa has been here for a, a very long time, you know, kind of for for some some people, you know, kind of some families more than 200 years. Um, uh, you know, a friend of mine recently... Um, you know, kind of, he he went to a, a Jewish high school, a culturally Jewish high school in in, in South Africa, uh, in Johannesburg, and he um, visited friends in New York, and um, he went to a party in New York and saw half of his of his high school class who are all now living in Manhattan. You know, so it's there is this thing in in, in South Africa, particularly where the the minorities are feeling not welcome, you know, kind of when they tend to kind of move themselves away from, from South Africa. And maybe that's, that's where a little bit of my pessimism comes from about this. But also think about this idea of, of ethnic identity and racial identity in Africa. You remember on our Facebook page uh, from maybe two or three weeks ago, uh, one of our more vocal critics, Randy, uh, she accused you of not even being African. Uh, yeah, you, you know, yeah. and and so it's this idea that even in 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 the Western in the in the international mindset that you know to be African means to be black. Uh, yeah, and, and it's a racial identity. It's a yeah, racial yeah. identity when in fact it's becoming far more complex. And if you spent any amount of time in in Johannesburg or Nairobi or Dar es Salaam, you recognize the fact that the Indian population has been there for centuries. You recognize that there are Chinese who've been brought over. There certainly there are whites. Uh, who are who absolutely define themselves as African? You know, I have a friend here yeah. who is uh, you know from Malawi uh, and three generations in Malawi, and you know, and, yes. you know, and he says, and he's white, and he says, I am I am African in Malawi first, uh, and I am everything else second. Uh, but yeah, yet, and so yeah. I, so again, this idea is that it's not just in the African mindset, but it's in it's it's a global mindset that has to change in terms of that Africa is increasingly becoming a more diverse, more ethnically diverse, racially diverse place. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you know, kind of just just to just to end, you know, kind of that. Like, why why is is that is an African identity so much harder to to claim? Than an American one, for example, you know, all kinds of well, people. That's a bad example. That's a really bad yeah. example, only because America is really a land of assimilation. I think a better, you know, we yeah, are no, we absorb absolutely. more immigrants than mm. the rest of the world combined every year. Now, but yes. a, a better yes. comparison, though, I think to your point, though, is China, and this is a discussion mm. again that I've had on Facebook with a number of our different followers uh, about ref- racial and ethnic identity there. China is a country that is 92, 93% ethnically Han. They do not have a very sophisticated sense, in my view, of racial assimilation and ethnic assimilation. One of the funny things that you go to, uh, you go to Beijing and to the Museum of Minorities in Beijing, and, and they have caricatures. I mean, you think that this would be a place that they would actually kind of honor and, and have a, a serious reflection of, uh, of ethnic minorities in China. And so much of what's there are, are caricatures and stereotypes of minorities of mm, ethnic minorities yeah. in China, you know, Muslims, you know, riding a jackass backwards and things like this, you know, and you're just, they have very, very, you know, complicated views when it comes to minorities. And, and we've talked about this in, with respect to Africans living in China and how difficult it is for non-Han 
people to be living in China. And I think, and, and I got a lot of pushback on uh, on Facebook about this. And I think that there's an underestimation of of how difficult it is. And I think it's a very similar thing in China. So Africa and China, in many ways, are going through the same type of of challenge when it comes to racial yeah. identity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, this is a very complicated and sensitive issue, uh, as we've had a number of different conversations going on on Facebook. As you can see, it's a topic that I absolutely love, and so I would love to have this conversation continue with you. If you happen to be in China or you happen to be in parts of Africa where uh, you are coming across these sensitive issues, please share those opinions with us. Tell us what's going on. Uh, you know, again, I take uh, an enormous amount of humility when I approach this because it is very, very very difficult to understand. And it varies from country to country, province to province, city to city in China. What happens in Shanghai is not the same thing that happens in Changsha or in Chongqing, same as in Africa. What happens in Senegal doesn't happen in South Africa. So we want to hear from you. Please share your opinions. Uh, you can also follow us, uh, and just a little plug here for our new iPhone app. You can go to the App Store and you can download uh, our, our app, the China Africa Project, to search for that. And you can follow Follow our Facebook, our tweets, our podcasts, our blogs, everything in one app on your mobile phone. We're also in Google Play as well. So look for China Africa Project, both in Google Play and in the App Store, the uh, iTunes App Store. Okay, Kobus, let's go on to our third topic now. Uh, you know, every, every six months or so, you see these kind of wave of articles that come out about, you know, whether it's about certain minerals that the Chinese are really just doing a whole bunch of deals. I don't know if it's because the PR is lined up around these deals. And so all of a sudden we see a whole bunch of press coverage on a certain mineral category. Or if, in fact, the Chinese actually do these deals in clusters so that there really are a bunch of these deals. We saw this with copper in Zambia a number of months ago where all of a sudden there was just a big push for copper. We saw it with natural gas in, in Tanzania. Uh, about six months ago. And now we are seeing it with platinum in South Africa. A number of different deals are being done. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, there's a great article in uh, Kramer's or Kramer's KramerMediaMiningWeekly.com. So at MiningWeekly.com. This is a pretty serious uh, news organization when it comes to mining. And China's Africa resource scramble, there's that word, Cobus, uh, goes platinum. And they really talk about a number of different deals. Bring us up to speed a little bit on uh, on why platinum and why South Africa. Well, South Africa sits on about 80% of the world's platinum. So it's pretty much it's basically the Saudi Arabia of platinum. Um, and so there's been a massive new deal. They found a, a big new um, deposit. And they, they, they uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, money being put in by uh, the China Development Bank. They gave a loan of about $650 million um, to, for, to a company called Besizwe Platinum um, to build a whole mine, new mine from scratch. It's supposed to start production in 2018, and they're saying it's, it's supposed to start to actually be, be producing about 350,000 ounces by, two, by 20, 2023. Um, now, the, I think one of the reasons why this, this drew a lot of attention is because in the rest of South Africa's platinum um, sector, there's been just free fall and chaos. Um, so you know, Anglo-American platinum, which is one of South Africa's biggest platinum miners, um, recently announced that they're closing a bunch of shafts. They're laying off 14,000 workers. 
Um, and, th- and now they're in a big, massive fight with the South African government about that. Um, and, you know, so, so in, in, you know, and generally platinum prices have been falling. Uh, some, some of the other big uh, platinum miners have also been closing shafts or mothballing shafts. And in, into this, the Chinese step and they start a whole new mine and they, they invest heavily. So, I mean, it's, it's just very interesting. What's the reaction, you know, in, in South Africa? Because as we've seen, whether it's from taxi manufacturing to certain auto manufacturing and, and even mining, uh, there's been a mixed reaction to the Chinese investment there. What's, what's been the reaction in terms of, uh, of platinum? This one has been pretty positive. I think people are just like, oh, okay, great. You know, kind of. Um, I think you know the the, the real um, rancor and anger in South Africa has mostly been about the, the the closing of shafts, you know, by other companies. So I think generally the the the, uh, the Chinese investment is, is is welcomed, you know, in this case. Do, do the Chinese, you know, the Chinese have a terrible reputation in the copper industry, particularly in Zambia. Um, and, you know, I don't I mean, personally, I don't know if what we see in, in the headlines is representative of all copper mines in, in Chinese owned copper mines in Zambia, but they have a terrible reputation. What's the reputation of, of, of Chinese mining interests in South Africa? Does it share that same, you know, the same difficulties or because uh, South Africa is a much more unionized and much more regulated uh, mining industry? Uh, do they have to accommodate to local customs a little bit more? Yes, I think so. Um, South Africa has a very, has very strong laws around mining, very strong environmental laws, um, very strong labor laws as well. The unions are incredibly powerful and formally aligned with the government. So they actually, you know, kind of the, the ruling party has, is part of a tripartite alliance of which one is one side of that triangle is the, the umbrella organization representing lots and lots of unions. So, um, you know, kind of, um, and also South Africa is, is a, has, has lots and lots of minerals. So I think South Africa probably has the strongest, as far as I understand, South Africa has the strongest um, kind of set of laws and you know most formalized set set of um, of regulations to, to to regulate mining because they've been doing it for so long. Um, so the Chinese are only one, you know, one of one foreign player in a very complicated and very large mineral market in South Africa. And there's lots of other foreign companies as well, and they all go through similar kind of processes. They have to meet similar kind of um, targets. And there's there's actually quite a lot of red tape um, around that. In fact, there's so much red tape now that um, that there's been a, complaints from foreign mineral companies and some. Actually, you know, some some kind of noises that they might divest and that they might want to move to other parts of of the developing world, which also also have a lot of minerals, but a lot less regulation. Now, the obvious question behind why China is now pursuing platinum so aggressively is, I mean, okay, obviously it's a very valuable mineral. Uh, you know, much like gold, we've seen an inflation, uh, you know, over the past 10 years in platinum prices as well. Uh, but it's not just for jewelry. And that was what I just assumed that it would be for jewelry. But also platinum is a key component for catalytic converters and motor engines. And this is really something critical for China's domestic auto manufacturing sector. Uh, and so as the Chinese want to not only kind of, you know, push out foreigner, foreign auto manufacturers in, in, in China, but also want to export uh, manufacturing operations around the world, uh, platinum will be an important component and important ingredient in those cars as well. So, Koba's final thoughts on, uh, on this platinum, uh, on these platinum deals that we're seeing. Well, yeah, you know, kind of, it's, it's just, it's, A, it's just very interesting for me to see it happening, you know, um, 
B, I think it's going to be interesting to see how the Chinese government manages South Africa's, you know, growing resentment and all kinds of complications in South African society around the mining companies. Because um, there is a lot of pressure from both the unions and from the government to look like they're being strong and like they're being like they're resisting the, you know, kind of the power of mining companies in South Africa after the shooting disaster that took place uh, late last year. Um, you know, kind of where a bunch of bunch of workers were protesting about wages and then got shot by the police, and it was it was a whole disaster that that, that dragged on for a while. The government is trying to kind of to, to get back its kind of left wing cred from that disaster, and so I think the Chinese are entering into a particularly complicated moment in, into South African mining, um, and it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. You know, because obviously on the one hand the Chinese government has a very friendly relationship with the South African government, on the other hand they might just be jumping into a very very kind of hot cauldron here, you know, kind of um, the, the unions are more than usually militant. The government is more than usually on its back legs. Um, and, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how smoothly the Chinese will be able to handle it. Well, that is, of course, one of the issues that John Kerry addressed in his Senate Foreign Relations confirmation hearings last week. And that's one of the issues in terms of mining and natural resources that we will continue to see uh, in the U.S.-China-Africa relationship. Uh, it, this is, of course, something that Jonathan Power talked about in his editorial. So all three of the of the topics that we addressed tonight uh, are available on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. We would love again for you to comment and to also see what other people have said about this. You know, what's fascinating about our Facebook population, we're now over 35,000 strong. Uh, it's really something that uh, is about 60 to 70 percent young people from Africa. So we're very, very excited to have that discussion going on. It's a very lively community and a very lively uh, debate that happens, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. Okay, Kobus, uh, that's it for this edition of the show. If people want to follow you and what you're doing in Johannesburg, what's the best way they can stay on top of, uh, of your various musings and what you're reading these days? I am posting regularly on um, on our Facebook page, um, and I've also I've now started posting, you know, kind of now and then I post asking for suggestions and contact deals and so on for people that I'd love to have on as guests. So you know, kind of I'd love advice about that. Um, and then also I am on, on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S T A D E N E S Q U E. And Cobus arranges the show every week, and he selects the topics. And uh, one of the things, the best parts about our Facebook page is that we've had a number of master's students. Uh, you don't have to be a master's student. You can be pretty much anybody who's got a, a different point of view. Uh, reach out to us. Uh, we had Alexander on a couple weeks ago who was in the Peace Corps. We've had uh, two or three master's candidates come on, one PhD candidate. Uh, so if this is an area that you're studying and you just, you know, you have some experience you want to share with us, reach out to us. Cobus is, uh, will, will answer you on our Facebook page. And we'd love to have you on the show. Or we'd love to kind of put some of your writing on our website at China africaproject.com and if you'd like to follow me you can follow me i'm at eolander e-o-l-a-n-d-e-r and i am uh, tweeting there almost every day uh it's kind of like a news service if you will for china africa headlines and of course you can follow me on twitter uh, as well as on our mobile apps on google and uh, on android as well as on apple as well so that's it that'll do it for this week we will be back again next week with another edition of the china in africa podcast until then thank you so much for listening <laughs>